Okay, everybody, we got a great interview for today. I interview crew CEO Kyle Vogt on the show for a second time. He just retook the reins as CEO of Cruise after a few years as CTO. But before we get to that, uh, it's a, there's a lot of car talk in today's episode, I'm going to warn you, but there's also a lot of Apple talk. We're going to recap the Apple event and talk about what they announced. And uh, their legacy of making confusing names continues. We do our best to sort it all out for you, but essentially they've released a Mac Mini that's twice as fat and four times the price. So big innovations coming from Apple. And As then usual. we talk about a different robo taxi company called Pony.ai, uh, and we debate their $8.5 billion valuation and if when they will get these cars on the road. It's going to be a great episode. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Indochino. Indochino makes custom-fitted suits, shirts, and casual wear at affordable prices. Shop for your next best look or book a virtual style consultant at Indochino.com. Right now, you can get $50 off any purchase of $3.99 or more by using code TWIST at checkout. Vanta. Compliance and security shouldn't be a deal breaker for startups to win new business. Vanta makes it easy for companies to get a SOC 2 report fast. Twist listeners can get $1,000 off for a limited time at Vanta.com slash twist. And Odoo. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of business apps that let you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Your first app is free forever. And right now, Odoo is offering $1,000 off your first implementation pack at odoo.com slash twist. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash twist. Apple had a keynote. And as uh, we like to do, we're going to spend a little bit of time criticizing Apple for their absurd decisions. <laughs> and branding, and then uh, give them their flowers for when they do something correct. It's going to be a mixed bag today. Uh, but Molly, I think we both agree the most exciting thing to come out of today is the Mac Studio. Explain to the audience, in your perception, what the Mac Studio is. I am trying to decide at this moment if exciting is the right word. Okay. But it is interesting. It's definitely the biggest announcement of, of okay, all of them, right? Because it was because yeah. I would say what we were really hoping for was the VR goggles, which like nobody really thought we were gonna get, but hope no. springs eternal. I think with Apple at the point at which they start leaking, they're probably still two years out. Anyway, the Mac Studio is actually a very interesting new desktop. Apple's uh they announced their most powerful chip, the M1 Ultra, and this new desktop computer, which basically looks like if you just stack two Mac minis together and then fused them perfectly, it's a big fat desktop that does seem, and this is important, right? Because it's Apple sticking with the bread and butter, like it is aimed at actual creatives, designers, video editors, musicians, uh, the people who have historically made up the Apple brand. These are the core users who have felt left out in the cold for the last decade because Mac, uh, Apple, Apple, I'm sorry, would not listen to them. And their complaints were, you make computers that are not designed for us, you took our ports away, you don't listen to us in terms mm -hmm. of extendability, we want to connect our own monitors, we want a customizable computer, because we do things like make movies or do animation, or photos, and uh, we need a very powerful computer, and we don't want to replace it with an iPad. Right. So you have this consumerization of Apple that occurred because of the iPhone and the iPad and the iMacs, 
And then you have the original people who felt left out in the cold. It does seem that Apple has turned a corner in um, addressing this group of people and not pissing them off by releasing the MacBook Pro with the M1 chip in it. Right. And putting the ports back and putting MagSafe back. And but you don't have to live dongle Right. I mean, they still had to wait such a long time for a desktop. Mm-hmm. It, it is interesting because like it's one or the either, and I'll be interested to hear your thoughts and the audience's thoughts. Either it is Apple finally, you know, giving the right product to its most core group of people, or it's Apple doing what it's done for the last 10 years, which is like occasionally trot out an updated desktop that is really expensive and has an all new form factor from the last one, isn't expandable, comes a year and a half after they've upgraded their most powerful laptop and still feels like, you know, you got to run Final Cut X on it or Final Cut 10 or whatever, which is like crappy software. So like, I'm not sure which one of this, these this is. This is going to be super confusing for people, but there is the cheese grater tower called the Apple Mac Pro. Right. Now, that is the one that you can put a bunch of hard drives in, and it's got power supplies and a ton of ports on the back, and that thing is like Mm $7,000. So this is supposed to be for that same group of people, but a little bit more affordable, I guess. And now, because of this new M1 chip, uh, which is called the M1 Ultra, if you've been paying attention, there's an M1 that was in your phone. This replaces like the Intel and all these other chips. So they make their own silicon M1, M1 Pro, M1 Max, which is what we got in our last Apple Mac minis and in our MacBook Pros, correct, Molly? We got I think the M1 I just Maxes. have the M1. I have the not Max. I think you have Max in your laptop. So which, I guess we have the Pros, which is oh un- incredible. Yes. There's the, the M1, the M1 Pro, the M1 Max, Mac. and now the M1 Ultra. I guess. I believe this is the family now. That's I mean, the guys. Family. This is absurd. Like, luckily, yes. Apple makes a crap ton of money and always has, but they're just a mess. It's just like, uh, and also, why not just say M1, it's 2, 3, 4? Would that not have worked? Right. Like, or are they just so different architecturally that they need to be a different category? And are we going to get an M2 Max now, an M2 Pro, an M2, and an M2 like to be clear, like we're dunking on the names and we're right too. And and I will never stop like marveling at the fact that I have three different Apple devices that charge in three different ways. And like some of them are lightning and some of them are USB-C, but then some <sighs> of them are, are are wireless, but not the same wireless. Like the AirPods can't charge on the Apple Watch charger because they're not that kind of wire. Like that is ridiculous. <sighs> God, However, so as a matter of computer engineering, these chips mm. are incredible. And I have no doubt that these machines are going to be ridiculous. I mean, that Mac Pro, MacBook Pro with the M1 in it is like almost scary fast. And and I think what they have uh, designed these for is power to watts. In other words, how powerful can they be Mm. and how little power can they draw so that your battery lasts an obscene amount of time, which is what everybody says when they get one of these machines. Oh, my God, I'm not getting the spinning wheel of death as much. I'm, you know, my machine is super fast and the battery life is just bonkers. Like uh, sometimes I forget to charge it and I'm like, I'm, I'm, you know, on hour 10, 11, 12, and I still have battery power left. Yeah. Uh, and on the old ones with the Intel, you know, you, they're like, yeah, you can get eight hours all day. And then like you use it and you get like six or five. So for those of you who are not watching youtube.com slash this weekend, subscribe there. Spotify has a feature now, I guess we're in the video beta. When you're listening on Spotify, there's some way to click a button and watch video. And then if you type this week in startups video, you'll find the video feed. 
and Apple. Those are, I guess, the three ways to watch us on video. Mm-hmm. So let's play the video, and we'll talk over it. combination of M1 Ultra and Mac OS cranks up the performance of Mac yet again. Okay. So now, let's talk about where we're going to use this incredible new chip. Okay. Today, we're going to focus on the place where so many people create their life's best work, the studio. A studio okay. is where creators okay. like designers, mm-hmm. scientists, and developers change the world. Whether it's in a home or an office, each studio is unique, customized mm. with the tools that complete the user's workflow. Yes. And for many, the Mac plays we a huge role. Like, I'm feeling space. it. It's working. This is me. With the transition I'm important. To M1, I'm a genius. I have a studio. I'm creating my life's best work right It's not now. an office. It's not a closet. It's not a garage. Entirely new it's a studio. It's a studio. Yet there are some users who want Stu- even Stu- more. Studio. So they can push the limits of their creativity. First, they want breakthrough performance and capability to yeah, turn their studio into a creative powerhouse. Next, they want a wide range of connectivity of course, for peripherals yes. that are key to their studio workflow. Yeah, we want to save and files finally, fast. finally, many words, want words, a words. modular system and display so they can create their perfect setup. So Kind of like saying you don't want planned today, obsolescence. Something totally new that gives our users exactly Which what they need to build the studio of their dreams. Mm. And here it is. Bom, 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 bom. <gasps> the studio of their dream. Yes. My studio's gonna have this lighting. <laughs> Whoa. Back it up. Whoa. It's just such a letdown, though. <laughs> I'm expecting something so epic, and they're like, <laughs> and here. <laughs> It's a Mac Mini, and I was like, I have a Mac Mini. It's not that awesome. <laughs> it's like a, it's a double smash burger of a Mac Mini, is what it they is. They basically made a double double. It's a double double. I'll, I'll take an animal Mac style. And studio display. And studio Mac display. Studio is an entirely new Mac with the unbelievable performance of our most powerful Apple Silicon. The like lack M1 of symmetry here is killing and me. And M1 Ultra, and the studio display is the perfect complement to Mac Studio. With a phenomenal God. set of features in that so precious. experience Mac users love. You mean you can plug them in? Okay. So you other? can plug the thing into the thing and then they yes. will work together like monitors and desktops oh have for time in memoriam. Okay. I, like, here's my take on this like craziness, Molly. Yep. Here's how you could have said it. A lot of you have wanted a more powerful Mac mini with more ports. We made one that's twice as fast with a lot more memory. Let me show it to you. Yep. Also, you could. we made you an external monitor in case you don't you want one with the Mac logo instead of one for half the price with a Dell. Like, that's the translation. Well, I mean, it ports on the back of this thing. As the world starts to open up and we all start to travel again, you gotta look good. And how are you gonna do that? You're gonna use Indochino like me. When I go to the All-In Summit in Miami, when I go to Australia again, I can't wait for them to open up. Maybe Tokyo will be open up again soon. And I'm going to go to Italy this summer for a week or two. I can't wait to go to Indochino.com and get all of my new suits dialed in. With Indochino, you can customize everything from suits and shirts to chinos and bomber jackets at surprisingly affordable prices. And I had an amazing experience going there, getting custom shirts, custom suits. Every piece is made to your exact measurements, and you can customize every detail. The fabric, the lapel, the monogram, the statement linings that I love so much. I was amazed at the process. It was so easy, and it was so detailed. So here's your call to action. Get $50 off any purchase of $3.99 or more by using the promo code TWIST at Indochino.com. That's $50 off any purchase of $3.99 or more at I-N-D-O. O-C-H-I-N-O dot com. 
and then use that promo code TWIST to get the 50, the $50 off. Great suits, a great process, so easy, so stylish, you're gonna look great. I think our real question is why are these big presentations still happening? Like, why is that the way to announce this? Here's a new computer. It like we put out a press release and people tweeted about it and then it went up on the website. I yeah. I don't like every three years or so they put out a new high-end desktop yes. or tower for pros. Yay! It's out now. We didn't, it's just like it doesn't need a party anymore. It just doesn't. It's when it's incremental. Here's the thing. I think what you're getting at. Just sell the chip and let people put that in their tower. Sorry, jumped on you. Well, if it's incremental, Mm -hmm. which this is, like you stack two Mac minis on and you put two extra USB-C ports, (laughs) it's incremental. (laughs) Yeah. When you do the Steve Jobs MacBook Air reveal, remember he had the manila envelope and he pulls it out of the manila envelope? That 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 was was like (laughs) mind-blowing. But they're using that for this. Right. And like, that would be the same as him doing that same trick where he pulls out of the middle of a folder and he's like, now it's 16 gigs of RAM, not eight. Yep. It's like, you know, kind of. And I'm sure the chip is amazing, but there's no way to demonstrate that other than to let people benchmark it. Like, it's just not. I mean, I'm sure that sales spike, I get it. It's a good bump. But the thing is, like, people are going to buy Apple no matter what. You don't have a a real problem there. And it's just. I think at some point we have now seen this so many times and it's almost like the boy who cried wolf so that even if the chip inside, even if the M1 Ultra is in fact like a generation defining technological achievement, they would have called it that no matter what. And so we don't know. And so it's just gotten yes. a little boring. It, a little I like boring the boy now. who cried wolf situation here because just to remind people, if you're watching the video, we'll pull up uh, in sequence here. Here's the Mac mini. Here's the Mac cube. And here's the Mac cylinder. And then here is the Mac Studio. And Mac Studio sounds like a software product, not a hardware product. So it's kind of silly. This is like the Mac Mini Pro. That's actually what this is. It's the Mac Mini Pro. It's a small footprint, not as small as the Mini, but it's for pro users. So I'm going to call this the Mac Mini Pro. You want to call it Mac Studio, that's fine. I'm calling it Mac Mini Pro. Or you can call it the Double Mini. It's the Double Double Mini. I don't know. There's a better name for this. But... Pull up for a second here, the cube. Now the cube was made, I have to pull up the year here, but this is like 15 years old, maybe. The cube is the sh- I'm sorry about the swear, but yeah. it just is. The, I, I always like the cube. Um, I think it's like underappreciated. It was at the time revolutionary. And so let's pull that out and take a look at the Mac at cube. That. It was, this is when they had that plastic they were using that was see-through. That mm-hmm. was like a big deal. Like Lucite. They were yeah, like the it, ones who it like invested. Levitated. Invented. Like it levitated. Yep. And I think it had a handle, if I'm correct. It did, I believe, have a handle. Yeah. Oh my God. I think I'm there was having, like a I'm handle a or something. To the CNET offices at 50 Francisco. This thing was sitting on my desk because I reviewed it for CNET. And yeah. everybody who walked by my desk was like, what is that? I believe I just it remember also got there was a so handle hot there. on the inside that it effectively almost melted. It had some problems. Oh, From a design the perspective, there's the handle. You, yeah, you would pull it out and you could actually, I mean, this was like the rare victory over the Steve Jobs lock it up mentality because you could actually Change access it. the pieces yeah. of it. It was mm-hmm. in fact extendable. Oh, check out the printer port. What did they call those ports? The 48 pin port, the oh, RGB connector at, at the top the RGB, and it had yeah. the parallel port, a parallel port. A parallel port. <laughs> you can plug here. Remember the parallel port with the clickers on the side to snap it in so it wouldn't fall out? But then if somebody tripped on it, it would go flying. Like the opposite of MagSafe. 
So this was dope when it came out. I mean, and the way it floated, like these things were gorgeous. And then remember, they had the cylinder. Yep. And I have two of these. I bought these, you know, to make my uh, video editors happy. I like, you know, I try to give them a little, you know, hardware gift. It was lovely, but you have to admit it got a bad reputation for looking exactly like a trash can. We're, we're popping it up on screen here. It, but if you remember, it was like, it was a marvel of engineering in that it was a perfect, it was in fact a perfect cylinder, but it had yes. this sort of odd dip at the top. There yes. it is. It had a lip until so you could carry it around by the lip, which was genius. But then it looked like a garbage like a can. can. It really did look like a garbage can. I thought it was dope on a desk. It looked futuristic on a desk. Yep. I got like Gattaca vibes, you know, or like Star yep. Wars vibes. It looks like a droid of some type. Plugs on the back was kind of dope. Very easily accessible. Mm -hmm. But th this is what they do, right? Every three years yeah. or so, every three or four years, like you get a new tower. Here's our little like. Here's our sop to you, creatives. <laughs> yeah, but they can't seem to decide if this thing should be tall or not. So let's pull up the Apple Mac Pro Cheese Grater Edition. This thing is like $7,000, and I think they were charging like $300 for the wheels. If you wanted it to have wheels on the bottom, so this was the obscene thing they made for pros. So mm -hmm. now you have them saying, This Molly, really was, yeah. This is for pros. We mean it this time. <laughs> Here's the cylinder. Then they were like, you know what? You didn't like the cylinder. We're going to go back to the tower because you all want a giant tower. So here's the giant tower where you can put in all your hard drives inside, take it apart, put hard drives in. Yep. And then everybody's like, you know what? Maybe I don't want the hard drives inside. Maybe I want to have a RAID array and that'll be shared by a group of people. Or maybe I'm using the cloud so I don't need a RAID array and I'll just have it back up to that, whatever. RAID array for people who don't know is when you put like, you know, five hard drives and they all are redundant and they're faster because you can write to a couple of them at the same time. This is what video editors like. And then they decide to go from this to now the double double. The double double. <laughs> and the so, up smash burger. I mean, it's just confusing as hell. Yeah, you know, like just now here's the Mac Studio, which is ugly. I mean, let's be honest. I think it's no, ugly. You, it's not that pretty. It just not pretty at bad. all. This feels like, um, this feels like they punted on the design. This feels like a punt to me. Yeah. They're like, let's make something that is, uh, yeah, just double size. I mean, which I guess fine. Like you have a form factor that works. But if your deal is that you're super creative and innovative and, you know, as all of the Apple fanboys are going to continue to yell at us, they're innovating. Like, this is a double double. You put another burger on top of the burger you already had. It's like, fine. so that's why I think if this was Mac mini pro, that would have been yep. a better branding. It describes it. So if, if this was framed as Mac mini pro, I'd be fine with this. That's really as true. The design. Yeah. But if you're going to say really this is point. a new revolution, it should be a new design. I, that just me. That's yeah. just me. Yeah. Uh, now, am I going to buy it? Maybe I don't feel the need to buy this. I don't think my Mac mini with the M1 is any better. And I'll tell you what's just crazy about this is the price. It says from 1999, but if you put this new chip in it, which is why you would get it. Right, right. You know, then you're talking about a lot of money. I think it goes up to like 4000 We cited it starts at three thirty nine ninety nine. There we go. Yeah. So if you actually make this the machine that you want, like an, an upgrade, right? A reason to go from the M1 Mac Mini, should you have that, then you're talking about, and you are talking about a beefy machine. Like I don't want to downplay the fact that you've got it's a beast you know it's a it's a beefcake and you have like gigs. a really nice port situation but it's 39.99 starting that's obscene 20 core cpu so if you want the ultra you're gonna pay four thousand dollars and honestly and you're gonna pay four thousand dollars for a terabyte of storage like a terabyte of storage is like what you get with a dell 
right now. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm not trying to be a jerk, but give me two for $4,000. I think they're so stingy. They're so stingy and so There's overpriced. Just this little, like, you know, do I want it? I, I honestly don't care if I had this. I don't think it would change my life. I don't think it's life changing. If I was a video editor, I guess I would. But video editors are going to look at this and go, a lot of video editors now are just looking at this kind of parade of rug pulling. And mm -hmm. they're just like, I'll just go with a PC. You know, right? I think a lot of them are using Premiere now. Yeah. Adobe they're, works they're editing as, on PCs. But at that point, then I think you would just like spend less for a more extendable machine. But I don't like listen, I, I would love to know because for so long, the Mac was the standard, the Mac and Final Cut full stop. And then it was the Mac plus Premiere. And that was great. But I wonder, like email us and let us know or tweet at us and let us know. Is this the machine that video editors have been dying for or that or podcasters or engineers yeah. or devs like? Also, why don't they care about gaming? Yeah, it's like so now weird. they're making this insane chip. Yeah, what? that's another thing. Like, shouldn't this thing be able to run like PlayStation, Xbox level games? And then, you know, if I want to play Age of Empires, like, you know, Definitive Edition or whatever the new one is that I play, mm -hmm. like I don't play it. I can only play it on my PC. And yeah, I don't get it. Let's just play this quick video here. This is the spec video. The exterior is machined from a single aluminum extrusion with a footprint of 7.7 inches square and height of only 3.7 inches. Inside, every element was designed to produce an unprecedented amount of performance in such a small form factor. Hmm. The innovative thermal system begins with a unique double-sided blower pulling air into the system across the entire circumference of the perforated aluminum base. Okay. The air moves over the custom circular power supply and through channels precisely placed to guide it. I mean, that's nice, but that doesn't that's change great. my life. Finally, the air is propelled through a low impedance rear exhaust containing over 2,000 precisely machined perforations. On the back, there are four uh, Thunderbolt four ports. So you to figured out how to cool your computer. <laughs> a 10 gigabit Ethernet port. Great. Two Standard. USB A ports. Standard. An HDMI port. Standard 10 and years a ago. Pro audio jack for high Standard impedance 10 headphones years ago. or yep. external amplified speakers. Okay, nobody cares. At least they didn't get rid of that. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, when you're the founder, it's fun to trade war stories with other founders. Recently, Balloon CEO Amanda Greenberg, one of my awesome portfolio founders, told me how Vanta's SOC 2 solution helped her save an important deal in the final hours. If you don't know, Balloon sells a SaaS productivity and collaboration software package. It's brilliant. And when they needed 10 documents in place within 48 hours in order to close this deal, well, Vanta saved the day by supplying customizable templates and helping them through the process to close. So if you don't have your sock too tight, you can't close major customers. And you know what? A lot of startups wait. Well, the waiting has to end. You have to work with Vanta's compliance software to make it easier to get and renew your sock too. They continuously test against technical and non-technical SOC 2 requirements, and they partner with over two dozen audit firms who have been trained to file SOC 2 reports directly within Vanta. On average, Vanta customers are SOC 2 compliant within just two to four weeks compared to three to five months without Vanta. And guess what? Vanta is such a great partner, they're going to give you $1,000 off your SOC 2. Thanks for that, Vanta. Here's your call to action. Get $1,000 off at vanta.com slash twist. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash twist. That's vanta.com slash twist for $1,000 off. Well done, Vanta. So here's something interesting. They're doing this new double-double Mac Mini Pro, 
and it's they faster than the Mac Pro, Peter. that's seven thousand dollars. So does right. that mean the next time are they going to take the Mac Pro Tower Cheese Grater and put the M1 Ultra in it, or are they going to do the M1 Ultra Plus Plus in that, and then charge I mean, twelve thousand for that? Hope springs I, eternal know. for the Plus Plus. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? The what's the name of the next? This if they've gone Colleen, Pro Max Ultra, what's next? So mm. you, you have the M1. Then you had the Pro, the Ultra, the Max, I think, mm -hmm. is the order. Or Max Pro Ultra, something like that. Max Pro Max Ultra, I believe. Pro Max Ultra. What's the next one in this lineage? Infinity. What's number five going to be called? It's got to be Infinity, don't you think? M1 Infinity? Infinity. M1. I mean, that is actually an awesome name for a chip. What? Yeah. Surge Dog is almost certainly right here. It will be the M1 Ultra Max Pro. Plus, plus. <laughs> <laughs> well done Serge dog for those Bravo. of you who don't know we do this live every day at about 10 o'clock and this is crazy but bear with me maybe it could be the m2 yes if you could do these incrementally i mean i was kind of used to that yeah you know like iphone max 13 i mean they it's are just better so names than the intel chips though right like didn't <laughs> yeah intel was just like what what did the developer call it uh the pentium 5.2 b Okay, yeah, that's good enough. Who good cares? Enough. Nobody cares. It's great. just a chip. Yeah. You don't need to brand a chip. And they at least went to core, and then it would be like the core i7, the, four the core ultra i9, core at least that Pentium. was somewhat, and the numbers went up, which is normal, instead of having it be like super ma max ultra plus plus infinity. I, I also like the idea of putting the year on it. Like, you know, with cars, we say like, well, this is a Mustang, a 2022 Mustang. So you kind of get an idea of how old it is and, you know. Give it a vintage. Give it a yeah, vintage. kind of. That kind mm -hmm. of thing. In uh, other, as just like for a quick lightning round of other things that Apple announced today, I yes, cannot please. believe I'm back covering Apple events, by the way. It was so Here nice to go. not care about these for like six years. However, uh, mm. Apple did announce they don't only care about premium consumers. And I'm happy to see they announced the new iPhone SE, which is its most affordable phone, uh, the A15 Bionic chip. Okay, so we got the, uh, whatever. I'm leaving it alone. Um, better camera, obviously. But the price yes. starts at 429 even though this is their affordable model, it's getting more expensive. This is $30 more expensive than the prior version. They also announced a new iPad Air. Who cares about iPads at this point? But whatever, it starts at $599. And then uh, in, in timing that I'm sure they wish had not happened, just as uh, Major League Baseball went on strike, Apple yes. announced that they will be exclusively licensing Friday Night Baseball on Apple TV+. You know, that might be the second most interesting thing. We knew they were going to come out with an iPhone e SE coming yeah. out with a new iPad Air. These are both incremental. Whatever. The SE is their low end phone. So the low end phone now has 5G. The low end phone now has a decent camera and decent battery. That's so, the one for your kid. I mean, let's be yeah. honest, like that's the kid's iPhone. Yeah, 429. It's great. That, that's yeah, their like accessible phone. And it's now got the A15 Bionic chip in it. So that's great. It's going to be more powerful. It gets all the new I, I guess you can use iOS 15 on it now, which is kind of nice. Mm -hmm. iPad Air. I always love those. Um, great for kids as well. But I do think the Friday night, you know, doing the sports leagues is interesting because that's something that TNT or ABC or, you know, whoever would have gotten ESPN would have gotten previously. And so that's, um, that's a it's reason. To download the Apple TV Plus app to get more people to use it. That's got to be expensive. TV I, I, I Plus, think, of course, being the service, not the device. <laughs> yes, there's but Apple yeah, TV, yeah. the device. There's Apple TV Plus, the free content. And there's Apple TV Plus uh, oh, I Premium? Think, I think TV Plus. 
is the subscription service. You got to oh, pay so for that. Yeah, you're not going to get this for free. Friday Night Baseball is not for free. You not have to free. have the paid service. Mm-hmm. So there's a way to get subscribers. But it continues. I mean, it shows that Apple is apparently continuing to ve- to invest in Apple TV+. Plus. I mean, they've obviously had some really expensive original content. Yeah. But I would argue that this is also a way to say we're looking for reasons to keep people coming back after yes. maybe they watch Foundation and then they cancel. Yeah, they had Ted Lasso. That's mm-hmm. like American apple pie. Now they have baseball. That's as American as apple pie and baseball, literally. <laughs> and uh, I want to see this new one, the the uh, Ben Stiller uh, dystopian, like your work life and your home life is separate. I forgot the name of that. Oh, yeah. Severance. I just started watching that. It's um yeah heard with it's Adam right. Scott. Yes. Who just done followed by Ben me. Stiller. Yeah. Just, you just follow me on Twitter. So I'm, uh, oh, okay, that could be another celebrity bromance for me. Yeah, there's uh, a bug in here. It is uh, super upsetting. I watched oh, good. you, I mean, in I'm, a great way. Like it's good. really good to think about. I later saw just, that they yeah. were releasing it weekly. So I specifically said to myself, I love Ben Stiller. Um, I like that Danamore he did. That was good. I love Adam Scott from uh, Party Down. If you don't know that show, it's pretty great. Oh, yeah. And Parks and Rec. They're, they're doing a new Party Down. I never watched Parks and Rec. So maybe I got to get into that. <gasps> oh, really? That's such a good one for you to start because it's like got a nice big catalog. Oh, cool. That's a uh, fun one. Is it fun? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I want, is it okay for a 12 year old? Maybe I'll watch it with my daughter. Yeah. Uh, perfect. Just, yeah. So I think this is, uh, I think Apple TV Plus, good content. I give them some credit for this. I think this is a kind of a good announcement for them. It'll be interesting to see if, you know, for these sports leagues, I think their future of the sports leagues is having a direct relationship with customers. Like I am an NBA league pass um, subscriber for six or seven years because I'm out of market and my team is in New York. And it's just perfect for watching the Knicks games. And I pay two fifty a year, maybe three hundred to get that to watch the Knicks win thirty games. So I'm paying ten bucks for every Knicks win. It's <laughs> kind of brutal, but uh, <laughs> they like have a direct relationship way. with me, which uh-huh. is the most important thing. And do you pay for any sports leagues directly? No, it's um, been a, it's so been I think a while since I was that big of a sports. Like I'm a, I like yeah. sports a lot, but not enough to. I just don't. I mean, I know that. W- it, on this show, it may appear that I watch a lot of TV because I'm like, oh, yeah, I watch that. And what really happens is I watch two episodes of everything and then run out of time to ever watch anything ever again. What, but would you pay because you like the Warriors? Mm-hmm. If you could just pay to have Warriors on demand commercial free, what would you pay for that? Like if it was like, one, like five bucks a month. OK, great. So you yeah. pay for the season 50 bucks for the season or something. Yeah, I could do yeah. that. I could pay 50 bucks for a season. Yeah, see, I think that's going to be the future is like, I just don't want to deal with, I just want to go to the Warriors website and just get it all, Yeah, you know, or go to the NBA site and just get it all. And so it's kind of interesting, these intermediaries, like buying a slice of it. Mm -hmm. Because you even if they have the slice of this, I think you're still going to be able to get those games on MLB, I wonder, or if those games will be blocked out and then people will have exclusive. Yeah, that's like their big announcement, I think. So then in the local markets, that means like if you're a Yankee fan and this is a Friday night Yankee game, you don't get to watch it unless you pay for Apple TV. That's going to be super annoying for those three games for Yankee fans. I mean, those exclusives already are annoying. But yeah, I mean, I think it's it is. Yeah, it's a this tough is one. when people go to Reddit and they type in Yankee stream Reddit <laughs> into Google to find the pirated streams of I in Russia. I mean, you know how I, we've talked about this so much. Like, this is how I feel about exclusive content. It's it, I don't want my entertainment ecosystem 
or any of my ecosystems to be so cut off. Like I hate it. I hate the idea that I can't just plug and play whatever I want into another thing. And like, I'm sitting there in front of a TV that has 19 apps on it, Mm. but like this one, I can only get over here. And, and then the idea that you would pay for MLB, but also have to pay for Apple plus just to get some exclusive games. It's just like, it's messy. And honestly, it's just going to make people want cable. It's going to make people want to pirate too. Uh, So I think that's the thing. It's like when you make this too hard for people, with yeah. too many services and too many carve outs, they're just going to go try to steal it. Like I noticed like on TikTok, YouTube, and Twitter, whenever there's a UFC fight, I mm-hmm. see UFC trending. I'm like, I don't like the UFC enough to, you know, pay for it. But like, I if I see it trending, I might be interested in seeing the knockout blow, you know, like the last 30 seconds of the fight is kind of interesting to me just to see how the person got knocked out. Yeah. And inevitably, you know, just even if you're not looking for it, you're going to see the pirated stuff. Um, and so you kind of get, you know, these fights only last 10 minutes or less. So you're going to find it very quickly being streamed somewhere. It seems like each new social network gets a free shot at it. So it was like Periscope had it for a while on Twitter, yeah. Facebook, YouTube, and now it's TikTok. So TikTok is like the ultimate place to watch a UFC fight if you want to watch a pirated UFC fight. People just take out their TikTok, they live stream and they point it at their TV. Mm. Uh, and they can't keep up with it because it's a live streaming they can't platform. keep up, yeah, totally. I do right. wonder what, what piracy numbers are at, yeah. Anyway, yes. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. I think it's generally kids who do it and just people who are not the core users because you, if, you, if you're the core user, you want to watch it in real time. You want to see the knockout blow before everybody else does in real time. Listen, when you start scaling revenue quickly, your company needs to be run professionally. And Odoo is the software that helps you maintain control of your fast-running business. Odoo is a suite of business apps where you can run your entire company from just one platform. This means you don't need to keep adding siloed SaaS products. Everything you need is there waiting for you to turn on when you're ready sales, accounting, HR, website builders, and so much more. You're going to streamline everything by bringing your apps onto one platform. No more issues transferring data between platforms, and you'll have one customer support contact across all of your apps. Plus, if you only need two or three apps to optimize your workflow, that's all you're going to pay for. Odoo has over 30 main apps and over 16,000 apps from their open source community. And the best part? Well, here's your call to action. Your first app is free forever, and Odoo is offering a $1,000 credit on your first implementation pack. Just go to odoo.com slash twist for $1,000 off. That's odoo.com slash twist. All right, we got our startup of the day because we cannot get enough A, startups, but B, robo-taxis. Pony.ai announced the first close of their Series D at an $8.5 billion valuation to continue building its fleet in the United States and China. The funding amount and the investors, interestingly, were both undisclosed. Hmm. Pony CEO James Pang was on episode uh, 949, way back in June 2019 in the before times. Yes. Before the pandemic, when people did want to take taxi places. Before Molly. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Pony said it has a billion dollars on its balance sheet. The company has over a thousand employees and is testing in China and US markets, both Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, Irvine, and Fremont. And it's on its sixth version of their robo taxi kit. What do you think about an eight and a half billion dollar valuation for building like a fleet of robo taxis that actually, from a capital perspective, doesn't seem like 
crazy. Okay, so 8 billion, if it was uh, 10 times uh, your top line revenue, your sales would be 800 million in sales. Mm -hmm. If you had 800 million in sales, and it was $8 a ride, uh, it would be a hundred million rides. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's a really high valuation. Probably there's rides no way this car I've never seen year. before is doing a hundred million rides around Fremont. Yeah. So a hundred million rides. Uh, Although you know, those are really big Chinese cities. I should maybe walk that back a bit. Like those are gigantic. You know, we don't uh, always remember how big those cities in China are. It's 2 million rides a day. Yeah. You know, ballpark, 2 million rides a day, 2 million rides a day in 200 cities, 20,000 rides in a city. It's not ridiculous if they were at scale. But now getting to scale, as we all saw with Uber and Lyft, Uber is in a lot of cities, like over a mm -hmm. thousand and Lyft is in a couple of hundred. Like it takes a decade to deploy to that many cities. So yeah. this is a future looking uh, valuation. If you were to do it based on revenue, if they were to sell each car for 100,000, they would need to sell 8,000 cars, no 80,000 cars or something. But that's mm -hmm. not their profit. That would just be the top line. That'd be a low margin business. So, you know, yeah, it's probably a very rich balance. It's probably a very rich uh, valuation. And it's based on them becoming a winner. Mm -hmm. And it's the same value. I don't know what Lyft's valuation right now is, but that's comparable to Lyft's valuation. And it's a whatever the market's really crushed right now, a sixth or an eighth of right, probably a seventh of Uber's valuation and Uber is doing billions of rides. So yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Although and Uber's not no longer in China, right? There's Didi and I don't know if Didi no. is actually doing autonomous in China. So uh, as a robo taxi play yeah. that's simultaneously in these big Chinese cities and the US, I could imagine them. It's just sort of an interesting reminder that there are more companies in this and that some of those yes. companies are definitely being incubated and built mm -hmm. in the Chinese market so that they might get to scale without us even noticing. To be and honest. we you know, Cruise is doing a limited pilot in uh, San Francisco in a limited area, basically the areas without a lot of pedestrians like pack mm -hmm. heights. And it's working. And so, you know, we're probably five years out, I think most people would say from having this work in, you know, the cities that don't have snow and ice. Yeah. Yep. And then maybe 10 years for the cities with snow and ice and you know, the edge cases. So uh, Lyft is at 12 billion. So this thing's almost as valuable as Lyft. That doesn't make a lot of sense if it's two thirds of a Lyft. So the yeah. valuation probably should be three, four, five billion. But, you know, investors in these early stages are betting that it will 10x. And so, you know, that's not completely unreasonable if you wanted to place a bet if it had 10% chance of 10xing. So yeah, I do think uh, you're going to see uh, Uber, Lyft and DoorDash be the beneficiaries of this technology, because there's a group of people who want to compete with those startups. Mm -hmm. Then you have a group of people who want to sell to those startups. So which is a better combination? The fact that Uber owns a piece of Aurora, is that the one that spun out? So they have that as a possibility, then they have everybody else who wants to sell to them. Mm -hmm. So you'll have some people I, I think pony AI wants to do their own Uber Lyft competitor and DD killer in China. And then you'll have people who want to just sell to, you know, the the ride sharing companies and let the ride sharing companies do everything else, build a brand, do a super app. That's what I'm logistics. trying to figure out about pony yeah. AI is because they, they look, it looks like they make a kit. I'm realizing the more I look into this, they yes, are it goes on top version. of cars, yes, it goes on top of cars. And so maybe they don't care, maybe they want Uber or Lyft to be a customer. Yeah, it's not clear from their website if they're going to compete or they're going to be customers. And you know what, they might, 
if I was running one of these companies, I would leave the optionality there. Right. I'd so, try to be aftermarket autonomous kit. Great. You don't have to make the That's cars. Great. Right. You just make you just focus on the kit. You add the kit to the top of cars now. And the fact that they can put this on five different types of cars. I see they have a Hyundai, they have a Lexus. So if they can put yeah. this on five types of cars, then they have they get to draft off of the car innovations. They don't have supply chain problems, but they don't get to do a full stack experience like the new cruise that lets you have no steering wheel and passengers facing each other. So it's pluses and minuses. I think they'll be able to deploy these quicker. Mm -hmm. And then they can either sell them or they can compete and they can just pick a market. Maybe in one market they want to compete, another market they want to sell. So keep your yeah. options open is a good idea. That's pretty, that is, if, if indeed that's what they're doing and it's a little bit hard to tell, um, that is quite clever. Yeah. Because I think in the future, don't you think we've talked a little, we've danced around the idea of like what's not danced around the idea. We've like glanced on, do electric conversion kits exist? There have been a, I've heard of at least two companies maybe that tried to make a run at autonomous kits, basically like plop this on and turn any car autonomous. Yeah. And I don't know that that's a very fully fledged. No, business. I think that I think but that works. It would because be a cool idea if it's doable. I think it is doable. I mean, I think that's what Cruise did originally. Then they got bought, and that's essentially what they're doing. Yeah, is they're you know attaching these things, and then they just take over the steering, the braking, all that stuff is easily controlled electronically. Yep. So, I, you know, yeah. it's coming. Um, adjunct, it's late. Adjunct producer Kushal says uh, one of the noties says comma AI is doing kit style in the U.S. So maybe this is yes. that. We yeah. have the comma AI founder on. He's uh, a unique individual. Mm. Um, you know, he's mm. like a George Hotz, H O T Z. Yeah, he's a, he's a very. Um, he's exactly uh, who I was thinking of when I was like, I know there's a yeah. company that's trying to do this. Yeah, I met him ages ago at a concert, and I was or at a concert, a convention, a, a convention, what do you call yeah. those? Yeah. Anyway, like a convention type thing, and was just like, you seem a little nuts, and maybe a genius. Um, he was just very vocal. Like he wrote yes. a lot of blog posts and was like trolling people and yada yada. Um, so there you have it. Startup of the day. The the ecosystem is still vibrant. People, there are lots of people doing interesting things. Super cool startups. We want to hear about all of them. Keep them coming. It would be good for us to do uh, at some point uh, a handicapping of the race. So I I don't know that there's an expert in the space, but if we could line up. You know, these are the seven players. Here's how many employees they have. You could rank them by employees, number of cars on the road, number of miles driven autonomously, et cetera. We might be able to handicap, you know, who was in the, you know, like we did for um, the goggles and, you know, XR, VR, AR. We kind of yeah. handicapped who we thought would win and who would win which percentages of market share. We could probably do a similar thing, Molly, with this. So I like that. That might be an interesting idea. Yeah. Because people are but, still working on cars. Like, you know, I mean, it, it's not it's nowhere near settled just because it's gone quiet for now does not mean yeah. it's no shaking it, out or consolidating in any real way like people it's still a dogfight it is a dogfight i'm putting this at five to ten years before you know sure. anybody who's in our audience you know the i would say five to ten years for when the majority of our audience you know 51 percent of our audience in the united states mm-hmm is has this as an option available to them yeah somewhere Definitely. between five and ten i think ten percent of our audience might have this as an option in two or three years mm -hmm. uh but it's it's going to take time everybody keeps saying it's like next year or two years and everybody says been saying that people thought this would be available two or three years ago yeah but the edge cases are just 
too hard. I too mean, hard you've had solve. your own yeah. challenges with autopilot and, you know, I don't, I'm not, I really want to get in the autopilot uh, beta because people who I'm watching the videos of those betas, you know, and, but you have to have a 99 safety score and I have like an 89 or 90 or something because two people drive the car and one person cares about getting in the beta and oh, one person does not. Interesting. They're parceling out the autonomous based on your driving score? Yes. So they gave everybody who's got 100 gets it. So if you're not driving, like making fast turns, driving yeah. too close to the car in front of you, they're like, okay, this is a conscientious driver who we can put in the beta. And then if and you we can look trust at those them to betas, take control, because I was going to say, yeah, it's almost like counterintuitive. Like if you're a bad driver, you need autonomy. But I see what you're saying is you want somebody responsible who's not going to drive it and not going to lay in the backseat and take a video. That's the problem with this is like, we're, we're basically deploying this based upon stupid risk takers, stupidest behaviors, like the people yeah. who stand on top of motorcycles or do whatever those drag races are called the spin outs they do in Oakland and mm -hmm. on freeways here side in the shows. Bay Area. Yeah. What do they call them? Sideshows. Yeah, these crazy sideshows where people wind up getting killed. Like, we're basically, you know, if people who are doing illegal sideshows, like it's fast and furious, like we'll deploy the technology based on their behavior. It's really yeah. dumb, because it is definitely the stay in lane stuff is now in a lot of cars. If just if we had stay in lane mm -hmm. was required on freeways, like seatbelts and airbags are required now, man, yeah. what a game changer that would be if when your car drifted into another lane, your steering wheel vibrated and it made a beeping sound. Why right. is that not standard? Yeah. And it's surprising that it's not because it is available on a lot of cars. It exists. I mean, it is super You have to easy. turn it on. It's solved technology, but in some cases you have to pay extra for it too. And that pay is extra and pretty turn unconscionable. Yeah. It should be standard. Like this is if we had functional agencies, what percentage of car accidents on freeways are people drifting into another lane, clipping another car? It's got to be half, right? Yeah. Like rear ending is half and whatever. Rear ending is a third. Drifting out of your lane is a third and a third is other. Yeah. If you... Like right now, you get most cars have the ability to do an alarm or hit the brakes if you're going to hit another car. The alarm should be 100%. If you're not the proper lengths, that should be standard like a seatbelt, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really should be. I, com I cannot disagree with that. And that would just, it would just improve so much. I was thinking about how on the 880 in Oakland, there are all these, free, all these like billboards that are basically, there's some word for it, you know, like if you just sort of rub up against somebody, they're like, just pull over. Like it's, <laughs> yeah, get off the freeway. It happens so often. There you have it, folks. If you have a startup of the day, email producers at thisweekinstartups.com. Speaking of robo taxi handicapping, uh, next up is our interview with Kyle Vogt from Cruise. Enjoy. All right, everybody. I've been doing the show for a long time. <laughs> so long, in fact that we've been having a conversation about self-driving cars from the inception of the commercialization of this industry. One of the first players in the space, shortly after all of these amazing XPRIZE style uh, contests were going on to do autonomy in deserts and figure out if this was even possible 20 years ago, uh, was Kyle Vogt. He is the co-founder and CEO at Cruise. And he was, uh, the last time he was on, it was back in 2014. And for those of you who are into the archive, just jump in and look for episode 459. Uh, and that was a year after he had founded uh, the company. Cruise was sold to GM, as many people know, in 2016, a really uh, prescient and smart move by GM to uh, dive into automation. And uh, he was the founding CEO from 2013 to 2019. Today, 
Uh, he is back in the CEO seat. He had stepped back to become CTO and president and uh, actually announced at the day we're taping this, Kyle is now the CEO again. Welcome back to the program. Gosh, how many years later is it now? Four, five, five, six years later. It's it's a few. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jason. Good to see you again. Uh, good to see you. And I was uh, just watching on Twitter a bunch of people talking about the mind-blowing experience of getting into uh, a cruise vehicle in San Francisco. To kind of think is one of the hardest cities to navigate given topography, pedestrians, uh, regulation, California, high regulation uh, state, and certainly San Francisco amongst the highest regulated cities uh, of all. So tell me, how is the pilot going? I know there's, I think I heard there were two cars on the road. It's just cruise employees right now, but maybe you could tell us about what's going on. Uh, well, our my first ride and the first ride uh, in a driverless car in San Francisco was back in November, November 1st. So just a few months ago. And since then, we opened up our wait list to the public. Uh, I think we're in the 10 to 20,000 people um, waiting to, to try out the service now. And we've been adding people from it, but obviously like people are at, you know, signing up on the list faster than we can, we can deploy them. And at this point, we're in the, you know, tens of vehicles deployed driverless. Mm. But what that means is right now we're only operating from about 11 PM to 5 AM. And over time, we're going to expand the service area and the hours. But around 11 PM, all of these cars launch, they go out of a parking facility and one by one without a driver, they kind of take off and start dispersing within the city waiting for rides. And then, uh, you know, we've got enough users on the platform already that they're kept pretty busy uh, throughout the night. Wow. Um, and did you say 11 a.m. to 5 p.m.? or no, 11 p.m. So it's mostly overnight right now. Oh. And our approach is, you know, a, a gradual buildup. So we're going to start with the least busy traffic times, make sure everything is working, you know, well, and that people are responding to it well, and then really quickly open up the hours and, and uh, geofence. And I'm glad we did that because we've already seen some things where it'd be hard to predict until you open up the service. And we don't want to like, you know, roll into a new city and shock the city by having a thousand driverless cars on day one. I think there'd be a lot of confused people out there. So we've been taking our time, but uh, things are looking pretty good now. And I think we're, we're going to be gearing up uh, to expand pretty soon. Uh, and so to be clear, this is a level of automation where there is no safety driver. We saw Uber was doing some, you know, work, I think in Arizona, it was and other folks have been testing self-driving but there's always been um what do they call it a, a backup pilot a backup driver. everybody's got a name for him but it's a yeah. person whose job is to to watch and take over if they need to but really like you got to break down the world of self-driving cars really into two categories there's systems where no human is responsible for anything like there, or there could be no one in the car as mm -hmm. is the case for ours completely does not rely on a human at all and then there's the other category which is works some of the time, but relies on a backup human. And in the case of, you know, ADAS systems by major car companies, they may do like steering while you're in the lane or do some other maneuvers, but they're counting on you to grab the wheel if the system makes a mistake. Mm. And the same is true for self-driving companies that are testing. They have people sitting behind the wheels ready to grab the wheel and, and take over. But there's a certain level of performance or hurdle you need to cross before you can remove the human from the vehicle entirely. And that means all the, there's all these backup systems built in you're kind of ready to handle any sort of scenario, whether it's getting pulled over by a police officer or a hardware or software failure, no matter what it is, the, the vehicle can basically handle that situation without someone in the car. You mentioned it was geofenced. Uh, so it's a subsection of San Francisco because we both know there are some areas of San Francisco and basically any city that's existed and wasn't pre-planned, you know, Europe comes to mind with tiny, tiny streets that are... Mm -hmm 
you know, uh, you know, in some cases, hundreds, maybe even a thousand years old. Which part of San Francisco did you decide to, to do the footprint in and, and what were the considerations there? In terms of area, it's about a third of the city. So it's big enough that you can actually use it to get around and, you know, right. go to a restaurant or something like that. And, and if you live in this area, take it home. Um, and it's uh, in terms of neighborhoods, it's Pacific Heights, the Richmond, Golden Gate Park, Sunset, uh, and a few other areas kind of near those neighborhoods. And those neighborhoods, for people who don't know in San Francisco, have less pedestrian density. I'm sure that was taken into account. And also, the overnight was taken into account. Pedestrians, are they still, especially in a city where people are enthusiastically uh, out and about, I think would be a great way to describe San Francisco yeah, or I mean, New York. That was a major consideration, wasn't it? Yeah, but there are, there are um, you know, concert venues and bars and restaurants where people are there late, you know, mm. till two in the morning. And so... It's not like this is a a desert absent of any vehicle or pedestrian traffic. They're out there. Um, but we wanted to start somewhere. This is the the best lowest risk latest place to do it. And we're we're pretty confident in the performance of the system because we actually test with people behind the wheel in the entire city 24-7. So we know what the most stressful situations look like. But our approach has been to test in the in the difficult areas and then deploy starting in the the least risk areas just to build some confidence and make sure that all of our testing and all of our assumptions and all of uh, the homework we've done matches up with our observed performance when there's no one behind the wheel. Because until you do that, you don't truly know. Um, you can you can simulate and estimate and make all these assumptions about performance, but at some point you actually have to do it, measure the results and start that feedback loop of learning from real customers. Tell me, what what happens in these edge cases where a pedestrian decides to stand in front of the car and or a double park car on both sides of the street is not able to navigate that. Do you have people watching in some command center somewhere who can say, you know what, Let, let's get a, a driver out there or somebody to navigate this? Because sometimes you, nav- you, you run into that as a human. You, you, this, uh, I don't know, a police activity on a block, an ambulance pulls up, some crazy person decides to leave their car <laughs> and block the whole street. These things do happen in cities. So what happens then in these like edge cases? Because you know, driving on a grid, or I use autopilot basically every day. I go to Tahoe. You know, on the on the eighty, I can use my uh, Tesla's autopilot the whole way, no problem, except for maybe some of the windy streets at the end. Um, but the edge cases seem to be the where we're at in the industry, correct? Yeah, and and the edge cases or or the long tail of types of events you see is very long. There's a lot of random stuff that can happen longer than you and anticipated so, uh, when you started uh, the company. I bet <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the approach for us is like, what's the minimum? amount of um, capability we can build in the system to address the largest number of those edge cases. So there are a number of things that can trigger basically a remote operator to be able to see telemetry from the vehicle and then guide it or navigate it. In the example of being too far down a one-way street um, or any number of scenarios, we also have um, a system to try to detect whether there's been a collision or even a person walking really near and brushing against the vehicle. We want to know if there's any contact between a pedestrian and a vehicle. Mm. And so we see those events. And so, you know, if there's a pedestrian messing with a vehicle, most likely it's going to trigger a call to a remote operator that's going to review the footage and confirm whether there was, you know, something that uh, needs to be addressed um, or there's an emergency, you know, and whether it's a, you know, the fault of the pedestrian or not, we don't care. We want to know that something has happened and make sure we disable the car and pull it over. Mm. And uh, so those systems are there. The remote operators can basically determine whether they need to disable the car, whether they need to pull it over, whether they need to relocate it. A lot of tools at their fingertips to handle, you know, whatever we might encounter out, out in the wild, so to speak. 
And that's that's the ultimate safeguard is that somebody can actually take the car remotely, park it, basically drive it like a uh, uh, like an RC car or something remotely. They can go drive around something, et cetera. And then if the car does get attacked by a pedestrian, which is not inconceivable in our fine city. We, we've seen some strange things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it can get weird. <laughs> it's it's not like driving a, an RC car because we have these, you know, we're talking to a car over a cellular network, which is not uh, necessarily reliable or, or mm. you know, high throughput. So the, the interface is more of like you can reposition a vehicle and sort of drag its location, you know, uh, like on a map from here to here, and it'll figure out how to maneuver over there. And the goal is to not have any safety critical actions like swerving or hitting the brakes. We don't want a remote operator to do that. We want them to give high level directives and, and the car, which can respond instantaneously, is responsible for all those um, safety critical maneuvers. What is it like to sell your company to a big company like GM selling cars? Um, how is that integration worked or they left the company on its own and just you know put it over here and said google did with youtube hey you know what you're doing go, go get it or is it really tightly integrated into the product lines uh in the existing car company yeah it's a good question well to start with i don't regret it i think okay. it was the right decision for the company uh in time and i think it would have been hard you know really gm buying cruise is is what in my view created the the flood of investments that flew into the self-driving space uh immediately after it would have been harder for us to raise uh the capital we needed to get to where we are today absent a major oem coming in and making that big bet and putting you know uh, a lot of money behind these things and so that was i think it was important for us to get to where we are uh and i'm glad we did that but it's hard. It's hard when you get acquired by a big company because, mm. and, and I think, you know, if you look at the statistics on these things, most times big company buys a small one, it doesn't go well. Mm. And I think, you know, a couple of things that worked out well here is the leadership team at, at GM, you know, all the way up to the CEO, Mary Barra and the president, Dan Ammon, um, really saw around the corner. And I think the, the, uh, where the future was. So this wasn't like a mid-level VP or a business development person pushing the deal. It was, it was from the tops. So that's helpful. And then I think the other thing, frankly, is like, I'm really stubborn about this. I want to make this thing succeed. And so no matter what weird, you know, big company uh, complications come up, you know, we're going to find a way through it and, uh, and be persistent and stick it out. But like everyone operates with the best intentions. It's just these large companies. There's so many different departments and groups. and Everyone feels like they have a role to play or a job to do that, you know, it can be very quickly, a small company can be completely engulfed by the parent company. And uh, it can take the form of just lots of questions and communication, or it can take the form of death by a thousand cuts where there's just yeah. like new policies and permissions. And you have to talk to these seven people and get them all to say yes before you can do anything. And so it really takes a, a deliberate effort to keep that, you know, natural tendency at bay. Yeah. And the, the hardware package, uh, when you and I last spoke, very expensive, maybe it was over a hundred thousand dollars worth of LIDAR and things bolted to the top of cars. Where are we at today? You know, if a car costs, you know, let's, I, I think you're using the Chevy Bolts, if I'm correct. So if that's a $50,000 car or something, what additional ballpark has to be put onto a car to make it self-driving? Yeah, it's a good question. I think taking a step back, though, there's really been two approaches that have, uh, I guess, risen to the top in the self-driving world in the last few years. One is to take a minimal set of compute and sensing and try to put it in a retail car and then through a software updates, you know, make it um, full self-driving. And that's unproven, but, you know, from logic, from logical reasoning standpoint, you can see how it would work. Our approach has been 
let's equip these vehicles with whatever they need to make them driverless and start to learn from that and expand gradually and simultaneously drive down the cost um, through increasing the volume and, and other tech advantages. But at least we know we can actually operate the business. Uh, and then once it shifts into less of a science project and more of a engineering and operational cost down exercise, we have a better line of sight to you know when we'll reach certain unique economics and when we can operate in certain cities and so on. Um, the other approach where you put some minimal hardware in the car and, and hope that you'll sort of invent magical algorithms to, to get to the performance you need is, uh, in my view, less proven, but it works if your goal today is to sell lots of cars. <laughs> yeah. And so, of course, we're referring to another electric car manufacturer that uh, has autopilot and it seems to be working pretty well. Um, so what, what's the, is it twice? So you're basically saying you're putting more sensors than you probably need and over time that'll get cheaper and you may need less. Um, yeah, and it, and it works out because like, you know, these these cars, the way we operate them as robo taxis, and we scale up a little bit, we're going to operate be operating them like, you know, 20 hours a day. Right. And so that means from a from an upfront cost perspective, you can afford to pay a little more and still have good mm -hmm. unit economics compared to a car that sits idle 90% of the time, like when you would right. buy. Uh, so maybe it's 50 grand per car or something like that. I mean, the ballpark range. That's, what I I, mean, that's the whisper number on the street is that these yeah, things are I mean, uh, getting it's, it's, below 100. <laughs> It's it's a lot, but it's not that relevant to us today because we're not building that many of the expensive ones. Uh, you know, we we've uh, announced that we have we're building our own custom chips and custom sensors and other things that uh, get really really inexpensive. There's a really funky looking vehicle, the um, Cruise Origin that you're working yeah. on, that looks kind of like um, gosh, I don't know if it was um, the the original Dread movie with Sylvester Stallone in it or. Minority Report, but uh, a bit of a boxy transportation, not a steering wheel type vehicle. Tell me a little bit about the cruise origin. Yeah, I mean, one of our goals is to uh, drive down the cost of uh, providing like a ride hail service. And the other is just to make it an amazing experience. And if you think about the car cars that we ride around in today, especially if you hop into the back of a ride share vehicle, Everyone's facing forward. Your knees are at the back of someone else's seat. The driver can't look behind and see you. They don't know what you're doing, um, you know, which can be good and bad. And then, you know, you don't have a lot of space. And, and so, especially if it's a compact car, your, you know, leg room is minimal. With the Origin, we flip that around. The seats face each other. And you have an enormous amount of space inside. It feels like your own train cabin or something. It's, mm. it's enormous. And why I think that's good is, first of all, it gives you like a lot of personal space. And you don't feel like you're in the back of a, you know, compact car at all times. Um, but it also makes these vehicles much more conducive for shared rides because everyone literally has a lot of physical distance between them mm -hmm. and they're facing each other. So you're not worried about what the person is yes. doing behind that you can't see. Ah, never thought about that. Yeah. And the, and the goal is if we can get more people to opt into pooled rides, which make a lot of sense uh, from a uh, utilization standpoint, we can reduce congestion a little bit because there'll be fewer, you know, need for fewer cars. And so that's, that's a big motivating factor behind that form factor. That was a real bummer that uh, Uber pool and Lyft line got sidelined because of the pandemic. It felt like they were making progress. Certainly they were investing a lot. I think those segments for both of those ride sharing companies were maybe break even or perhaps even at a modest loss, but they did feel like they were figuring out the algorithms and in which cities, you know, it might work. Um, you, you believe in that as well. You believe that the algorithms can figure out how to make these either like bus routes or, you know, just a little bit more, um, conducive to multiple passengers yeah 
Yeah. And, there, you know, we can experiment with this just like uh, the rideshare companies have been, you know, because obviously if, if you don't have that dialed in perfectly, these cars can fall back to just serving, you know, rides for individuals. But for us, you know, the, the transportation solution of the future should be better in every way, right? It should be, should be safer over time. It should be better for the environment. It should be, you make better use of our roadways. And really, we're trying to hit all of those because um, I don't think we want, you know, this, this glorious future we've been promised with self-driving cars and flying cars and all these things. We don't want to get halfway there. We want to, we want to nail this and really get people excited about it. Uh, let's talk about safety San Fran- and regulation. San Francisco has allowed you to do this, obviously. <laughs> uh this that's had to be a huge hurdle to tell the audience what what got you to um got, got you through all this regulation and red tape uh, are cities now really excited about this as opposed to maybe a little nervous about it when you got started how is how's the climate change for regulation well uh, i guess to start with a lot of a lot of cities have problems they they want to solve and you know self-driving cars i think can help with many of them um you know san francisco has a i think it's a vision zero where they basically want to get pedestrian uh fatalities down to zero um and uh, most cities want to be greener have more environmentally friendly forms of transportation and so self-driving electric self-driving cars can kind of help with both of those but um you know there are other things that we think down the road self-driving cars can really help with one is the accessibility of transportation Mm -hmm. so you know if you're disabled you can use one of these things and our goal is to make them very very accessible and then also things we've done with the origin and bringing, you know, the sensor and compute costs down and all those other things. We think, you know, eventually this will be much lower cost than uh, owning your own car or using Uber and Lyft, which increases job mobility and lets a lot more, more people do the things they want to do uh, in a city. And so I think those things are, you know, all, all, all problems that cities want to solve. On the regulatory side, you know, we really have two big uh, groups, depending on where you want to operate in the US. One is NHTSA, who operates at the federal level, and they uh, are in charge of basically making sure vehicles are safe on the road. And then at the state level, um, in most states, the equivalent of the DMV or Department of Motor Vehicles um, does permitting and registrations for vehicles. And so in California, they have a program for self-driving cars. So we've been working closely with the state um, and making sure at least people in the city of San Francisco, like first responders and police departments and other people know how to inter- interact with AVs. And then on top of that, we, you know, we've tried to go above and beyond. We have this program called Cruise for Good. And through that, we've delivered over 2 million meals to people in San Francisco uh, using our self-driving cars while they're testing. Mm-hmm. And so we're using this you know, excess capacity we have, and we've pledged to use 1% of our miles um, to, uh, to, to give back to the community. And I think those things help build up some um, willingness to, to let a service like Cruise come in and operate um, and ultimately hopefully do really good things for the city. If uh, most ride-sharing rides are about 10 bucks, 12 bucks today in a major city like San Francisco uh, or New York, where do you think crews will be able to get it to? What do you think consumers will experience when, when uh, they start paying for this? Because the trial you're doing now is gratis, right? It's free to, to participate if you are lucky enough to be selected. Yeah, for the time being, we're waiting on one less permit from the California Public Utilities Commission, who huh. uh, regulates basically taxi-type services. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. To, to be honest, I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that it's ultimately going to be cheaper than hiring a human being to drive someone around and basically paying a full-time wage. Uh, and I think the experience can be better too. I mean, one of the things, and, and this may affect people's you know willingness to pay or excitement about paying, whether the same amount or, or less or more, we don't know. But you know, the way these robot cars drive, they're robotic, but in a good way. And by that, I mean, every time they approach a stop sign or accelerate, 
They do it with the exact same deceleration force. They take the corners with the same amount of acceleration. It's predictable. And we've actually tuned it to minimize the amount of like, you know, jerkiness, um, jerkiness yeah. forward and backward that, that you get all yeah. the time in a rideshare car. So a lot of people will go on a ride and they're doing emails and stare at their phone and they get to the end of the ride and they're like, wow, I don't have any motion sickness. I feel fine. Whereas, you know, then if you take an Uber or Lyft somewhere else in the city, you're going to be like, oh, this is, this is a bit, it's a bit rough. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I actually, one of the reasons like I actually invested in Uber back in the day was because the rides were smoother compared to taxis at the time. Mm, interesting. Where taxi, you know, drivers, I think they usually rent their cars for the first seven, eight, nine hours. They're basically paying back the lease cost. And it turns out the last four hours of their 12 hour shift is where they make their profit, right? So they're- What do they call it? Like the gate or something? Is there, is yeah, it's, in New York, it was 130 bucks. Yeah. So, you know, they, wow. all the medallions, th I mean, this was like the, kind of the tragedy of the whole thing all the medallions got bought up by rich people, lawyers, accountants, like the professional class heard you could buy the medallions in New York and then rent them out and you'd make, you know, whatever amount percentage on it. And you get a, and yeah, they would rent them out for it was 130 bucks. It depends on if it was a Friday, Saturday night or a Sunday or a Monday or whatever. But yeah, you'd basically think 130 bucks. So they, you know, if they get to the third or fourth hour, you know, they're halfway there, then they get to seventh, eighth hour, and then they're finally break even. But by that time, you've been in a car driving for eight hours. And you, you just got to, race for those last four hours to try to to try to you know get into the black it was kind of gnarly and unfair and then the, this doesn't surprise me that they're going to be much smoother uh rides for everybody and much safer and well and i mean so, think about it. if you could if you yeah. could pick your top one or two percent of uber drivers that you have ever had i'm assuming you've gone on hundreds of uber rides if sure, you could pick the yeah. top one or two percent and say i want that quality of driving every time you can't do that with people because the yeah. distribution of driving behavior is too wide but you can do that uh with robots It'll be perfect every time. And they, they're going to start to learn which streets are also the most unsafe or have the most unpredictability. I'm certain now in San Francisco, there are problematic intersections or streets. Uh, am I correct? And then has the feedback loop gotten to the point where you can say to a government agency or you have you done this yet? You know, this really shouldn't be a stop sign. It should be a, a, a light or this is a light. It could be a stop sign or this block is just absurdly challenging for whatever reasons. There's a club on it and people spill out into the middle of the street. Yeah, I think I mean, that that feedback loop would be a good thing to have. It's probably going to be slow in terms of generating change. But you know, it, that reminds me one thing that I you know, it, this got in the news a lot recently, recently, but uh, you know, these automated driving systems treating stop signs differently than humans would, mm. I think ultimately, one day, once you can prove that, you know, driverless cars don't need to fully stop at stop signs because they're actually doing all the looking that a human driver is supposed to be doing and maybe yeah. more you know i wouldn't be surprised if in a few years robots can kind of blow through stop signs and stoplights legally with permission so long as they've been you know proven to be safe in those situations so i'm really excited for that because you know anything that improves utilization or throughput on our roadways mm. is fundamentally good for cities and so if we can get people places faster or put more people on a road that's a good thing and I think there's a lot of things there that just humans are never going to be able to do just because we're fallible and we're human that uh, the robots can do. And, and that's opportunity. Yeah, I mean, we have to turn our heads and we can look in one direction at a time. Robots can be looking in all directions at all times. So instead of coming to a full stop, they can come to a, or as we would say in Brooklyn, come to a full rolling stop <laughs> was, yeah. the, was the joke. But yeah, I mean, I think the Teslas were, uh, I guess, had to be tweaked a little bit. There was a little controversy. I think they were going through the, maybe they were not fully stopping, I think. And so that is a, I guess, a question is how, how much do you have to stop uh, at those stop signs? And yeah, that would be amazing if you could just roll, if the 
street if the speed limit was 35 the the rule for self-driving cars is yeah you can go 15 miles an hour through a stop sign and it's got well, plenty it's of time to stop you know it's probably more context dependent you know these these vehicles the, the way we build them they know where they can see clearly you know that there's nothing there and there's no cars coming and where they can't because there's a truck blocking an oncoming lane or there's a uh. building corner or a tree and so if you can demonstrate both internally and obviously to regulators and others that when the situation is right, there's no risk by proceeding. I think that, uh, that's a cool opportunity. But, you know, that's that may be a bit uh, a ways out. Yeah. I think until then, we can all we have a lot we can do uh, driving uh, within the existing laws. Yeah. And, and tell me about weather, because that was the other big thing that, you know, we, we live in a foggy town, there are towns that have snow, there are towns that maybe don't have lines drawn as crisply, uh, you know, as a city might, you know, a suburb might not be as well maintained, or you could have very narrow streets. So Let's tackle weather first. How how are we doing with weather, specifically snow, rain, fog? Those seem to be the big three, right? Yep. So uh, taking a step back here, like, you know, we've been working on this for like a cruise is about eight years old. But in the grand scheme of things, going from nothing to driverless cars in operation in a major US city, that's a relatively short period of time. And the way we got there is by picking the one thing that's most important for the company and doing that and basically only that so that we can get there quickly and you know make progress as a company and so we've deliberately chosen to launch in an you know an urban environment that has less crazy weather weather than maybe like Boston or New York City in order to do that sooner and uh, get some real world experience with customers which we think will help us scale up faster than if we waited until we could solve everything before we deployed anywhere but we've been working on a lot of like our next generation sensors and compute systems and everything else is designed to handle all kinds of weather and the way these hardware cycles work is, you know, the cars that we have on the road today, a lot of the hardware and sensing decisions were made years ago. And uh, as they go into production and get matured and validated, then they show up, you know, and, and they're on the road today. So we're working now on the, te the technologies needed to handle, you know, all, si all sorts of weather capabilities down the road. But in the meantime, you know, there are a lot of places in the US that have climates that, you know, don't have a lot of snow, like the southern por portion of the US. And so you're going to likely see us expand into those kind of markets uh, in parallel to working on uh, the hardware and software solutions for more challenging weather. But yeah. I will say in general, um, the systems work pretty well, even in even in the presence of rain or uh, or fog. We just haven't fully validated them and are not comfortable operating them in a driverless mode uh, in extreme circumstances yet. But you know, as we expand out of the sunny, um, sort of clear yeah. sky part, parts of the US, we'll, we'll take that uh, you know much more seriously and spend more time on it. Uh, so once again, California gets the new cool technology first, because we don't have snow all over the road, most roads here. So snow is going to snow and ice are the hardest conditions for humans. They're going to be the hardest conditions for the for the robots and the AI as well, right? I think that's right. I mean, it's one thing to handle, um, you know, a road surface where you still have full traction or most traction, but there's just stuff in the air, whether it's mm -hmm. dust or fog or or light rain. It's another thing when, um, the coefficient of friction, you know, on the road changes because it's icy, um, or or in the auto world they call it split mu, uh, mu meaning the coefficient coefficient of friction where you can have one tire on an ice patch and another on a dry area, and the control problems get more complicated. And it's not something that's never been done before. It's just something we haven't spent a lot of time on yet because we're kind of focused on what's ahead of us right now. How necessary is lidar? I know Elon was talking about we don't need lidar to do this. How much of your system is dependent on lidar? Uh, versus computer vision today? LiDAR is very convenient because it helps you get um, a really good picture of 
what's immediately around a vehicle, especially in the short range. Um, and if you're trying to distinguish between, you know, a person laying on the ground that's wearing a dark jacket that from a camera looks just like a patch of road and a person lying on the ground, um, mm. you know, it's nice to have a, a sensor that can give you an accurate, trustworthy depth measurement, especially, you know, around the vehicle. Um, you know, when you get to longer ranges, I think cameras and radars are the types of sensors to rely on more. Um, you can get great velocity information from radars and the precise, you know, position or distance or orientation matters less when objects are far away. So you mostly just need to know what they're there. But as they transition from being far away to being closer, you really need a lot of cues. You want to know the exact heading of a vehicle. You want to know its precise velocity and other things. And so while you know, many years in the future, I think you can maybe do all of those things with cameras. I would certainly want radars as well. Um, LIDAR just kind of shortens the, the time to get to market with these things because um, you don't need a camera-based system to be bulletproof and, and perfect uh, if you have more than one sensor to, compa- you know, to compare readings from. What dependency is there on GPS, if any? Because a, a big part of the early days of self-driving was GPS-centric. Oh, we know where you are on the road. Now it seems the cameras and the fidelity has gotten so amazing. The sensors have gotten so amazing. And GPS is kind of table stakes. You know, you're on Lombard Street, you know, you're on whatever market. It really is about what's going on around the vehicle. So what role does GPS play these days? Not a lot. Um, you know, and, and GPS in cities is is really bad because you have this, I call it urban canyon phenomenon where the GPS signals from the satellites are bouncing off the tall buildings that you're driving between. And can shift your position a lot. And so you can't really rely on it anyway. But the way our systems work is they have a basically a memory, which, you know, it's sort of, you know, maps are one form of memory. And once they get a lock on that map and know where they are, and you may use GPS to assist in getting that initial lock, once you're locked on, you don't really need it anymore. And once you're locked on, you stay locked on. So the GPS isn't playing a huge role. The cameras and the LiDAR are playing the big role. Uh, And that means, and LiDAR may, be less of a role in the future you think is it possible that these systems will be able to get past lidar or do you think it's lidar is always going to be part of the the winning package well my personal view is that today you know people are relying on long range really high power high performance lidar to see things far away especially on highway driving and other things i think that's got to go away um because having a you know, high power laser that you're trying to keep stable when you're bouncing up and down on a highway is just hard to do. Um, but I think it's really useful for short and medium range, uh, immediately around a vehicle and maybe out to 50 or 60 meters. And if that's your goal, that becomes really inexpensive with today's technology to the point where, you know, it's practically the same cost as a camera. And so again, if this makes it convenient and simpler and potentially safer, um, I don't see why you would, why you would ever go away from that. Is Cruise's business going to be running an Uber Lyft competitor or supplying cars to ride sharing companies or undetermined at this point? Well, we're flexible. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I think um, this has the potential to be very disruptive for ride share companies. And, you know, your investor in Uber, so you know, all about yeah. their, their model and everything. Um, and so, you know, I think these companies can coexist, potentially work together. Right now, we're really excited about having, you know, fully integrated service because I want people when they experience their first driverless ride, I want to control every touch point on that experience and make it really magical and really fun. And maybe things stay that way, or maybe they don't down the road. We don't know yet. But at least for now, when people have their first experience, you know, in a driverless car, I want to make sure it's a good one. When will consumers be able to buy these or is that not going to be Cruise's business? 
Uh, well, today, given the higher cost of the technology that we put in these, as I said, they make more sense for a robo taxi application. Mm. But down the road, you know, we're we're aware that not everyone wants to use a robo taxi service all the time, even if it's super cheap and super available. There may be times when people want to own their own car or get a different vehicle form factor or whatever it is, and for those reasons, you know, we want to pull that benefit forward in time as well in terms of you know how self driving can make it better. So you know, with GM. We're likely going to put this technology in vehicles that you can buy or or lease or some form of ownership, and uh, you know we're working on basically the hardware and sensing and other solutions to make that happen now. And uh, you could see it, you know, in the second half of this decade for sure. Kind of a, a wonky question, but you're collecting massive amounts of data about your city. Uh, Waymo, Uber, Aurora, just so many companies are also collecting all this information about cities. And then, of course, you have open maps and you have the GPS companies, Garmin and Google Maps, Apple Maps. What is there going to be some collective uh, or has anybody talked about this where you could as a self one of a half dozen uh, automation companies here uh, be able to share data on challenging situations and maybe have some sort of open mapping type product or project? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if down the road things standardize. Um, because, you know, I, I guess it depends on how things shake out. If there are multiple AV players that are still around years from now, because right now everything is kind of consolidating around a handful of companies. Um, if there are multiple players down the road, then it may it may become something where, you know, companies aren't competing or really differentiated on that map data. Um, they differentiate in other ways. And in that case, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens, you know, because it, it makes sense on the surface. If you have more vehicles contributing to this pool of knowledge, the pool of knowledge is going to be more comprehensive and more up to date. That's uh, Elon's big advantage right now is that he's got so many Teslas on the road. He's got the, the best data set, I would think, of anybody. Yeah, I think, you know, certainly in terms of exposure to diversity of data, having cars everywhere yeah. is helpful. Um you know, the, the, it also depends what's the fidelity of the data, like obviously a fully equipped car with lots of lidars and radars and camera, the value of that mile of data or whatever could be more. Um, and then the question is, really, like, can you turn all that data into insights or improvements into the product? And I think that's what a lot of people are trying to build right now is this magic machine, where you just feed it data, just like send in images and other things, and somehow it gets better. Yeah, it's not really the way it works today. There's a lot of people hand labeling data or scripts that are trying to label data and humans cross check to make it all, all, all sure, you know, make sure it's right. And then once you use all that data to retrain these neural networks, you still have to go and check and make sure that these new neural networks are better than the old ones and they didn't get worse in some way. And so we're not quite in this, you know, glorious future where you just throw more data at a system and it magically improves. But I think, uh, you know, around the road, if we are down the road, if we do get to that point, and you don't have access to a lot of data, you could be left behind. Yeah, it, it's one thing to have the algorithm, you know, throw up a bunch of posts of your friends and be like, hey, maybe this birthday announcement's more important than this, you know, other, you know, kids picture or a bar mitzvah is more important than this or whatever. Like, there's no downside to getting it wrong, really, or but getting it wrong in self driving, you literally if there's a stop sign that's challenging, and the car needs interventions, you have a human look at that video and multiple humans look at it and train the data, right? You have, it's very, uh, on this edge case journey, I think a lot of the companies are on, there's a lot of manual consideration and thinking through what should happen at this intersection, correct? Yeah, and this, right, and, and you know, you can inadvertently teach a neural network 
slightly worse behavior just by throwing more data at it. Yeah. And so the challenge is to curate data and show it, exa- show these neural networks examples of mistakes they've made in a very targeted fashion. And then we, we have like call them miners, little scripts that search through our data for certain types of mistakes and then feed that back into the training data. But that's a, it's a pretty complicated procedure and it's not really a, uh, a turnkey solution quite yet to just go from lots of data to continuously improving product. But that is the goal for us and I'm sure many others. Guys have made it so far. It's amazing. As we wrap here, what's the, what's the hardest thing now? Is it getting the hardware tighter? Is it this algorithm? You know, the, is it the, the machine learning aspect of it? Is it the edge cases? What, what's the most challenging thing you deal with every day? I mean, you know, the, we have so many technical problems we're solving simultaneously that there's not any one that I'm particularly worried about or keeps me up at night. Really, it's about execution. So continuing, this is going to sound simple, but continuing to bring in and retain really smart people to build the right tools and infrastructure to accelerate development, and then to just make steady progress and not, you know, sort of slow down as we grow in terms of size or start saying yes to too many things and lose our focus. And I really think if we just um, keep doing what we've been doing and stay focused and execute well, um, you're going to see driverless cars everywhere. And when do you think? you know, consumers in major cities, uh, will this will become the predominant way people get around in taxis, if you had to pick a year? Uh, It's hard to say, you know, and the reason for that is, you know, we're really seeing the tip of the iceberg right now. There's been years and years of exponential improvement to these products to get them to the point where you see your first driverless deployments and people can use them. And so that rate of progress has been rapid and exponential during that time. Now we're starting with a very small number, probably going to see exponential scaling. And so it's really hard to predict the y-axis at any point in time, you know, when you have these exponentials. So I'm not going to not going to lock myself any, in, okay. into anything other than to say, you know, we're in one major city, a lot of major cities look similar, and uh, we're moving as fast as we possibly can. Yeah, it's fantastic. Last time you were on in 2014, we did our bet, uh, which expires in 2024. And uh, we made this a uh, 10 year bet when debts would uh, be re- reduced below 5,000. We, we all know debts in the United States about 30,000. Is that still the number? It's gone up. I think it's closer oh. to 40 now. Jeez, Louise, is this, it's got to always, it's, and it's got to be people distracted driving, right? I mean, that's got to that, be the That's the theory, distracted driving, or maybe from COVID, people are driving less or, or behaving more erratically. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, it's going the wrong direction right now. It's just unbelievable. So we made this bet, $1,000 omokase susher sushi dinner it was uh, inflation adjusted so who knows what this will cost um, yeah inflation's through the roof so this could be <laughs> could be expensive i i re- expected a reduction to about ten thousand. you went five uh, I, you know it's it's i think we're both in the running here i mean time is moving quickly overall when you look at this is this moving faster than you thought it would or a little bit slower feels like we're going a little bit slower absolutely it's it's slower than i anticipated you know i think everyone in the industry thought this was going to happen sooner than it did and the reality is until you start putting these products out there and exposing them to tough urban environments, you just don't know how difficult it really is. Mm. But our belief is, you know, like you said, if we're going to get to this lower number of fatalities in the future, it's not going to happen on its own. It's going to take driverless cars and people pushing forward, uh, challenging the status quo and really putting a lot of energy and firepower into this to make these products and to get them out there. Um, absent that, you know, the future is pretty, pretty bleak. If you had to put a percentage number on how close we are to solving this problem, what's the percentage number you'd put on it? Well, will will we solve it? Absolutely. Great. Absolutely. Yeah. If if cruise if not cruise then someone else. Yeah. It feels um, like uh, to me three or four people are going to figure this out. So the question is if, what percentage are we at now? 
I have my own thoughts. Oh, I'd, I'd say 100%, given that we've got it in a small small piece operating in San Francisco. But to, right. to us, like going from R&D phase for seven years to having a product that real people are using, that's it. It's out there. Yeah, I feel, 80, I feel like you guys are 85% of the way there. I think the snow is like an, in the inclement weather, northeast, another five points. I think these education are points, you know, pedestrian wackiness, and then winning over the public, which- uh, you If know, you're talking this, about general availability, I'd, yeah. I'd agree with your, your assessment. That's fair. 85 feels fair for general accessibility. Yeah, sure. But I mean, congratulations. I know this has been like a lot of hard work. Uh, and it didn't go as fast as people thought it would. And it's not been easy. There were a lot of people trying and now you're down to, you know, let's face it, what is it a five horse race, I think, here in the United States four or five horse race. And I think, you know, society's gonna look back on this and the work you did. And uh, it's a huge mitzvah for humanity, that all of these people who die in the United States unnecessarily in these car crashes, it's gonna go to zero. I think it's going to go to zero. Uh, I really sincerely do. I think it's going to be impossible to crash a car. It's going to be like some random thing, like a like commercial aviation. Nobody gets on commercial aviation now, and you know, on a major carrier and expects the plane to go down. I think people get in cars. They're like, yeah, this is real, you know, high risk uh, behavior. You get hundred people dying a day in the United States. Yeah, it's going to go mean, down. Hopefully, to- we we bump up against the laws of physics. Like the only crashes that remain are physically unavoidable, um, and those that are preventable, we can prevent. That's what's going to happen. It's going to be like some boulder falls. has nothing to do with driving. It's just a random act of God uh, that a boulder fell. Uh, but seriously, congratulations. I think it's awesome what you're doing for humanity and, and to the team over there. You know, just it's it really just impressive to watch that you guys didn't give up. And, and you know, the other players in the space are still grinding it out. I mean, obviously, there's a big prize here. It's great, you know, for economics and business. But there's a bigger issue here, which is young people die in car crashes. I mean, and, and it, it's just tragic and you're going to save a lot of lives. So to the cruise team, uh, congratulations, really. And keep it up. We can't wait to be riding around in these. It's going to be a wonderful future, even if it took an extra five years. <laughs> That's great. Well, thanks, Jason. We appreciate that. All right. I'll see you in a couple more years uh, when you're taking these things out in Boston and getting through tiny streets in Spain. Uh, but for now, I can't wait to ride in one in San Francisco and, and, and have that nice smooth ride uh, in Pack Heights and into the inner sunset and everywhere else you are. So continued success. Everybody can go to getcruise.com. They're always hiring. They need more engineers and, and people. And I, how do you sign up for the San Francisco? Pilot? It's right on the, right on the website, getcruise.com. You can sign up on the wait list. Go sign up, get on the wait list. And I uh, can't wait to try it. And we'll see you all next time on this week in startups. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Producer Nick here. I want to tell you about the SaaS Syndicate. If you're a founder of a SaaS company with a product and market, our investment team wants to talk to you. Head over to thesyndicate.com slash SaaS, S-A-A-S, to apply to raise from the SaaS Syndicate. And you can join Jason's Syndicate of over 9,000 accredited investors at thesyndicate.com. Producer Justin here. No cool startup? Check out OpenScouting.com, where anyone can refer a startup to our investment team here at launch. Even if you don't know the founder, if you're the first to flag a company for us and we decide to invest, you'll get 5K in cash or 10% of our carry. Hey, everybody. Producer Rachel here. Are you an early stage startup that has product and market, some traction, and are looking to raise at least $500,000? Apply today to Remote Demo Day for your chance to pitch to over 9,000 investors in Jason's syndicate. Submit your application at remotedemoday.com. Our next event is on April 27th. And if you want to learn how to invest in startups from the world's greatest angel investor, and no, we're not talking about Chris Saka, then head to angel.university to apply. 
The four-hour workshop costs $300 and all proceeds are donated to charity. To date, we've donated over $175,000 to various charities and you can see the full list at angel.university slash charity. 